0: Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I have a hot tub in my backyard that I love very much. But it's broken. Just like it was a year ago. For several months, like it was a year ago. Uh, When it broke... Uh, You know, a year and a half ago, or whenever that was, a repairman came out and basically said, "Well, it's too cold; we can't fool with it now." And so he just turned it on to run so it wouldn't freeze up. And uh, in the spring, we fixed it, and it broke again the same way it broke before, which is the the main motor still runs, but it doesn't get hot. And I don't know about you, but with me in a hot tub, the hot is the key thing. (laughs) (laughs) And there's actually three motors in the thing, and and only one of them will run. And, you know, what happened before was he fixed all the electronics in it. But apparently there's something deeper that is wrong that makes the electronics go out. And now they're out again. And I'm out of a hot tub. A surface repair won't help when a system rebuild is needed. The Corinthians, when they wrote to the Apostle Paul about marriage and sexuality, proposed a surface remedy. And the Apostle Paul wrote back in about a thousand words of chapter 7 and said, no, you need a system rebuild. And we want to begin to look at that today. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go to the website and get the message. We talked about an overview of, of what God says about Christian marriage. And it's important to have that framework as we jump now into some of the details that the Apostle Paul talks to them about. And in particular, this week, right at the beginning of the passage, we're going to understand that 1 Corinthians 7 is God's plan for joy and sexuality, 1 Corinthians 7 is God's plan for joy and sexuality. Follow as I read the first nine verses. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and let the wife... And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." God's plan for sexuality acknowledges the danger of sex. And you say, well, what is the danger of sex? Some things may come to your mind when I say the danger of sex. But I, I, we need to look at this first verse and to try to understand what would the what, what were the Corinthians asking Paul? He says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Clearly, they wrote a letter to him, and it wasn't just this issue. There were several others that are going to come in through the rest of the book, but one of the issues was here, and his answer is in verse 1. And so, we don't know what the question was, but the answer is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of immorality, each one should have their own husband or their own wife. Now, the NIV translates this, it's better not to marry, and that is a bad translation. I'm going to use the NIV later in a place where I think it's an excellent translation, but that's a bad one because the word literally says touch. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, and that word is used in the Scripture and and other words translated that way when it's indicating sexual contact. Um, It's similar to the way God very graciously talked about sexuality um, early on when he said this, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. Trust me, it takes more than a passing acquaintance. Clearly, this is talking, that, see, one of the things you'll, you'll find if you do, uh, do some word searches in your computer uh, program, uh, search for the word sex in the Bible and see how many times it's used to indicate the, the physical connection between a man and a woman. Almost never. God always uses very gracious language like the word know or hear, the word touch. And so those words then become defined in the way that they're used. Here's an example. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. He's not talking about saying, good to see you, sister. He's talking about a touch, which is sexual encounter. And that's the way this word is used here. It is a word speaking about sexual contact between people. And of course, the, one of the best ways to understand how words are used is to go through the context And we come down to verse 5. We're trying to answer the question, what were they asking that he answered to in verse 1? Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Maybe even better literally rendered, stop depriving one another. So now we get a clue. We say in the church at Corinth, there appears to be an idea going around that went something like this. Sexuality causes pain. Look at the thousand prostitutes at the temple on the hill in Corinth who come down from the temple and ply their trade. Look at the pain that that causes. Look at the pain of all of these failed relationships. I think the question they asked was this. Wouldn't it just be better if we said no to the whole sexuality thing completely? and the apostle Paul writes back yeah it's good not to touch a woman but here's the problem in verse 5 he says stop depriving one another who's he talking to husbands and wives it would appear that the Corinthians were some of, some of them were so fed up with the pain of sexuality that they turned away and said, I'm not even going to have sexual relations with my husband or with my wife. And they said to Paul, isn't it just better if we completely, and I think this is the best word here, abstain? Whether we're married, whether we're single, isn't it better if we just completely abstain? Now, what is the pain of sex? What would cause these people to, I mean, some of you are young enough, you don't fully grasp what I'm talking about. Your moms and dads will have to explain it later later because Pastor Dave is talking about grown-up things today. And I don't apologize for that, and I think you ought to talk about it as you have need to do so. But those of us who are physically mature enough to understand the draw of sexual desire, How bad would things have to get before you said, I'm just going to not ever do that again? How bad would it have to be to make people want to pull away completely from that? I think it would have to be pretty bad. I think these Christians, before they came to Christ, maybe after they came to Christ, but at least before they came to Christ, we're living like people in our world do. Turn back a page a page in my Bible, in a way to 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. We emphasized this last week. We're going to do it again in this week and probably in the weeks to come. This describes how they lived before Christ. Neither fornicate, Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That is, people who live in the sinful lifestyle and never repent from that, those people are unsaved and will go to hell. And such, verse 11, were some of you, but you were washed you were sprinkled, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. And so clearly, and and I've just chosen the four words out of that list that have to do with sexual pain. Clearly, these people knew sexual pain. Fornication means any kind of sexual activity other than that between a husband and wife in a marriage. Okay, it's a broad word, it comes into our language as pornogra- pornography, pornea, porn. And, and that word, when people participate in fornication, the result is pain eventually. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, excuse me, and then adultery. I'm thankful that I do not personally know the pain of adultery. I've sat with people who do. I just can't imagine the pain. The world wants to portray it as a good idea, but it's not. It's painful, highly painful. And then homosexuality. Um, If you're here today and you're struggling with homosexuality, I want you to know that God loves you and I love you, and please do not interpret my words in a condemning way. But I know that what drives homosexuality and what results from much of homosexual activity is pain. And then the word drunkenness is on the list. Those of us who have been involved in law enforcement know what a huge role drunkenness plays in crime and in domestic violence. I don't I hardly know if I've ever heard of a domestic violence situation in which alcohol wasn't involved. I'm sure there are some. But I've been reading a book, as research for some things that I want to write on dating and forming relationships. It's called Sex in America, and it's a survey of college-age students, and there's a huge interaction between drunkenness and sexual activity, especially on the college campus. Now, our society today is just like their society back then. Um, people live together sometimes because of monetary concerns. Ah, we can't afford to be separate. Or there's this concern or that concern. That does not contribute to sexual joy. That contributes to sexual pain. This book that I've been reading on that's surveyed thousands of college students, they talk about the age old pattern, which is still true. Men, predominantly at that age, are being promiscuous for the physical pleasure, women are still trying to control the process in general in order to get a loving relationship and the result of coming together and breaking apart and coming together and breaking apart is painful remember last week we talked about how God created the sexual union to be part of the one flesh marriage relationship and when people come together in marriage and the one flesh union God describes divorce as a tearing of the garment a rending of the garment and there's pain in that In a lesser sense, that happens every time people come together sexually and then separate themselves. They come together and there's this beginning of intimacy and beginning of openness. And at least with one of the people, if not both, there is a tearing of that and a building and a tearing and a building and a tearing. And and some people have described that as giving away a piece of your soul, giving away your soul one piece at a time. Our society still calls it cheating when you're having a relationship with somebody, a sexual relationship, and then you go out and have a relationship with someone else, even though you're not married, maybe you're not even committed, but you're going out here, they call that cheating. Why do they call it cheating? Because it's tearing at the one flesh. And this, this stuff was going on in Corinth as well as men were seeking the affection of men and women were seeking the affection of, you, of women. And alcohol was fueling many of, their, many of their sexual encounters. And the net effect of that is spoken of here. It's summarized here. Don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, whatever when you do something, you are planting a little seed. Whatever you plant, that's what you reap. If you sow to the flesh, of the flesh you will reap corruption. In other words, if I, if I do a sinful deed, the effect that's going to come back to me is something that tears me down, not builds me up. The Christians in Corinth who were asking Paul, wouldn't it be better just to stay away from sex completely, had no doubt experienced the brokenness of sexual immorality. They were experiencing the heartache and hopelessness of sexual liberty. I mean, think about it. Our society back in the 60s had the sexual revolution, which got us to the point where now you can do anything you want I don't know if there's a big happy meter on the United States, but do you suppose it's going farther into the we are so happy reading? I don't think so. I think the proliferation of the helping professions, psychologists and psychiatrists, and the proliferation of medications for supposed illnesses indicates... The people are not better off now than they were then. There is a pain in sexual promiscuity that cannot be denied. You know who that is? How many of you know who that is? Mary Kay Letourneau and Vili Fulau. Okay? I don't know when this picture was taken, but taken, but today she's fifty-three and he's thirty-one. And they began a sexual relationship when she was a schoolteacher and he was twelve when he was 12. And she went to prison for it. They, they, uh, there were, It was a huge case, because it was one of the first kind of big cases of this type where you had an older woman and a younger man. There have been many cases of older men, younger women, and we always just uh, treated those as statutory rape. But here was the first time it was a woman, and the thing that was really perplexing about this is There was an intense relationship between the two of them, especially from her part. If you follow these cases in the law, what often happens to people, the first time they're convicted of a sexual crime, they will be given a deferred sentence and they have to go to counseling and then there are limitations on their life. That's very common. The common first sentence is seven years in prison and it's deferred and you go to counseling and you meet all these qualifications including staying away from your victim Okay, wouldn't seven years wouldn't the threat of seven years in prison be enough to get you to stop some behavior not in her case she could not be apart from him and so after the sentencing the original sentence and the they came together, were caught together again, so she went off to prison for seven years. When she got out, they got married. Okay, now, I, I'm not here to talk about can an older woman love a, young, a, a boy. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just gonna set that aside. Let me ask you this question. How does it feel, how would it feel if your husband or wife left you for a 12-year-old? Not only are you married, but you've got two or three, four little kids. I forget how many they had. How do you feel when they walk out for that relationship? Would you call that brokenness? How do you feel if you are her children? Mommy left me for a boy a few years older than me, and now they have a family, and they have children, and my daddy's gone on and gotten married to somebody else. Is there brokenness there? Oh, our society wants to talk about how every gets, but you get a divorce and feel good, and everything's fine, and start a new family, and everything's fine, and we all get along, we all get together at Christmas. You know, it's just wonderful. Hey, there's brokenness, and we need to own up to it. How does the person, I'm, gonna, I'm not to that point yet, I just want to get off that picture. How does the person feel, how does the person feel, try to imagine, who goes to a club night after night looking for a gay lover? Oh, I know if you see the picture of that club and the music going on and people dancing and so on, they're all having a great time. Just imagine a person who's looking for love. They're going in there looking for a relationship, and 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 it starts and it stops and it starts and it stops and it starts and it stops. How do two people feel? How does one of them feel when you have a live-in lover who who refuses to commit to marriage and then leaves? How do you feel when your daughter goes to spring break in Florida and gets drugged and raped by three drunken men while the crowd cheers, and someone videotapes it all. Yeah, that happened two, three weeks ago. And they're all yeah, 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 yeah. Remember, remember before when I put the word drunkenness in with the line of sexual sins. It's when we start talking that way. Then it's not hard to imagine the Corinthians who experienced all of that and more, wrote to Paul and said, Paul, isn't it just better if we just stop sexuality? And the Apostle Paul writes back God's answer, which is this. God has a plan for sexuality and for joy, and it's never changed But there's a greater concern, and that concern is moral purity. And that's why God's plan for sexual joy begins with marriage. Marriage is the righteous expression of sexual union. God wants you to have the joy of deep personal intimacy, including sexual connection. Verse 2 here is a wonderful one-word definition of what is righteous in terms of sexuality. He, he says in verse 1, yeah, it's good not to touch a woman nevertheless, or but because of the, literally it's in plural, the sexual immoralities the many different kinds of immorality. Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul doesn't say this is the better way, but he does say this is the normal way. This is a wonderful one-verse definition of righteousness, and it reads a little different from this verse, but it says the same thing. Marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. In other words, this is God's plan. But contrasting with that, Everybody who practices sex outside of marriage and who breaks the marriage vows in adultery will be judged by God. I love what A.T. Robertson said in his little one-line comment on this verse. This is not the only reason for marriage, but it is a true one. Speaking of morality, of purity. Because of sexual immorality, let each have their own wife or husband. It's not the only reason for marriage, but it is a true one. Look at verse 2. The New King James and the King James both use the word uh, let. Let each man have his own wife. I think it would be better translated the way the NIV does. Since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. In other words, God is saying that marriage is God's provision for the desires he created in us. We looked at that last week, that God created us and sexuality is part of our creation and he, he wants us to experience that joy, but marriage is the way that he wants us to experience that joy. That's what this passage is about. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness or Christian maturity, Christ-likeness that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You cannot be righteous and be immoral sexually at the same time. You cannot be living in sexual sin and at the same time growing in Christ, just like we would say of any other sin. You cannot hold a sin in your life and still be growing up in Christ. God's will is for us to be sanctified. The literal meaning of that word is set apart. It's set apart. This fine instrument is sanctified in our church. We don't move it around a lot. We don't set very many things on it. If the kids play it nice, they can play it. They can spill their cocoa puffs over there, but not over here. It's sanctified. And there's some things we need to do that with. Not everything. The carpet's dirty. That's okay. We're going to take care of this because it's, it's uniquely valuable. You know what? You have been sanctified to God. And, and, and just like we wouldn't treat this roughly, you shouldn't treat your life with sexual immorality. We have been sanctified, and that means that God's will for us is sexual purity. We should know how to possess our our vessel, our body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Did, Did you see that? This is the way, this is why all of the sexual brokenness goes on in our world, and it was going on in Corinth. When you live according to your desire, that's what the word lust means. When you get up in the morning and say, this is what I want, and you go after it, and you live that way, that's what it means to live in the passion of lust. That's what the Corinthians did. That's what the people in our society are doing. That is what Mary Kay Letourneau did. For some reason that you and I, most of us, cannot quite understand, she said, I want him And she lived in the passion of her lust, not in a righteous decision to be true to her marriage vows and to the Lord, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger. For God did not call us to uncleanness but holiness. Now get this. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God. I find that interesting that this was such a significant topic that the Apostle Paul said now listen listen to this teaching Uh, this is not man but God speaking here isn't that true in all of the Bible yes it is but God put that statement here to strengthen it so that we would look at marriage and say marriage is God's provision for the desire he created in us nothing else that is God's will that is God's word Marriage must include sexual affection. This is where Paul moves away from talking particularly about what we would call sexual purity and talks more about sexual joy. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband... And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Marriage must include sexual affection. John MacArthur put put it very simply this way, celibacy or abstaining from sex, is wrong for those who are married. Now, I want to be real honest with you here today. Uh, I've done a little bit of counseling in the last years, and sometimes this part of the marriage relationship breaks down. And I want you to know that God says this is a God-ordained part of marriage. And if it has stopped for any reason that's wrong that's a sin see God planned this whole system of life marriage and sexual fulfillment all goes together it is God's plan why in the world would anyone be pursuing celibacy in marriage let's think through the Corinthian eyes for just a moment How about this? One that it does translate over, but not quite so much. You know, my husband is still going. You know, maybe you have a Christian woman coming to church and her husband doesn't come. And she says, my husband goes to that idol temple and worships with the prostitutes. I'm not going to have sex with him. Those of you who are married can understand the hurt that that kind of a practice. I mean, this is, this, is, this is not only happening in Corinth. It is the normal way in Corinth to go up to the temple, for the men especially to go up to the temple and to worship with a prostitute. And you can imagine what that would do to a marriage. How about this? A husband and wife get saved, and they say, my wife and I were saved from a life of terrible sexual sin, and frankly, we feel guilty every time we even attempt to come together. It just hurts our our conscience. Somehow we can't separate sexuality from sin and brokenness. How about this that we still hear about certainly today? I was raped, and frankly, I just can't handle it. I just don't want to have anything to do with my husband or my wife because what I went through as a child. How about this, which certainly was rampant in that day. My husband has had a mistress for years. She takes care of those needs. And today we could add to that list the ready availability of pornography and the availability of online emotional affairs where people find their old flame from high school or whatever and talk 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 relation 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 and before you know it there's more affection in a perverted kind of way there than there is with a husband and wife listen friends this is what god says if you're married sexual union is to be a regular joyful loving part of your marriage period period but he doesn't just say that he goes on to say this marriage needs to be conducted in love and I think that's what verse 4 is about verse 4 is not about rights it's about perspective The wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. This is a fascinating balancing point to Ephesians 5, which says the husband is supposed to lead and the wife is supposed to follow. But if you read Ephesians 5 carefully in verse 21, what is verse 21? Verse 22 is the one that says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. What does verse 21 say? No, don't look it up. Don't you dare look it up. You need to know it. You should have it right here. It says, submit to one another in the fear of God. And that's not just talking to husbands and wife. That's talking to everybody in the church. You say, well, submit to one another in the fear of God. So that means I can't assert myself. I always have to be seeking your good. Well, if you're always seeking my good and I'm always seeking your good, we're not going to do anything at all. if the husband always defers to the wife or the wife always defers to the husband, you know, hey, use a little bit of godly thoughtfulness and understand this. What does God want between a husband and wife? A mutual love. Love in the scripture doesn't mean affection and passion. It means I do for you what you need done. When the scripture says that God loved us and sent his son, to be our savior? Was he up in heaven going, oh man, I just like these people so much. I just can't wait to get them into heaven. No. Romans chapter one says that while we were still enemies, God reached out to us. So love is an action wherein the the person who is loving like God says, you need this. I'm going to do it for you. I am going to love you. Now, God willing, there is warm affection. And for that matter, the whole concept of sexual union is part of creating warm affection in the, in the marriage. But the, the point is this, there's got to be a mutual kind of love wherein the one is trying to take care of the other, and that one's trying to take care of this one. And there has to be a mutualness to it When you get married, you are giving your body to your wife. Your wife is giving her body to you. Your body belongs to God, first and foremost. Go back to chapter 6, verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And so your viewpoint of marriage needs to be something like this. What does God want me to do in order to care for my wife, to care for my husband? What is God's expectation? It's not about the wife's expectation or the husband. What does God want me to do to care for this other person? And part of what he wants you to do is to give yourself physically in that relationship. This loving aspect of marriage is is also spoken of in Philippians 2, which talks of the the attitude of Christ in coming to earth to die for us. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish motive or conceit, but in a lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That's the attitude that's got to be present in marriage, in all things, including the sexual relationship. Marriage must be conducted in love. And then, according to verse 5, marriage must prioritize relationship. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't fast a lot. Except while I'm sleeping. I never get up in the middle of the night and eat. That is one eating folly that I do not have. So I fast every night from whenever the last bowl of ice cream goes in until... (laughs) Until I hit that Diet Coke at McDonald's in the morning. <laughs> this teaches us something about fasting. The scripture has about this much information on fasting. Very little. But the key concept seems to be like here. When a person would, would deprive themselves of certain physical things like food or sex, the purpose was to give themselves to prayer. And, and obviously, you'd say, "Well, what would make a person want to do that?" Well, something really significant. You have a big decision to make. You uh, you have a great illness to pray about. You you know whatever it might be. Say, "I, I just need to." put life aside and just talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord. And every time I have a hunger pain, I'm going to use that to say, talk to the Lord. I'm going to remind myself. Every time I have a desire for my wife or my husband, I'm going to, I'm going to use that to remind myself to talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord. That's what, that's what fasting is really about. Fasting is not about physical health in the scripture. A lot of books, a lot of things have been written and said. Take the word of the medical authority out there today before you take the word of those so-called Christian experts God did not design fasting to be a health benefit to you There may be a byproduct of that, but it's all about focusing on the Lord. Now what God says here is be careful Be careful about saying I'm gonna fast from sex for the purpose of prayer he says, "Be careful about that." And what he essentially says, the priority is on the relationship, not on the so-called spiritual activity. Um, I can imagine somebody saying in the, in the first century saying, "Not tonight, dear. I'm fasting, I'm praying." And the Apostle Paul is saying, Hey, if you're going to fast and pray from sex and food and whatever, you and your husband, you and your wife need to agree together. And if there's no agreement, that is where Ephesians 5 needs to kick in. And the husband needs to be leading, saying, Dear, no, we're not in agreement on this. We're not going to do this. And that is where Ephesians 5 needs to kick in, and the wife needs to say, Okay. And she needs to trust the Lord. She can pray anyway. She doesn't have to do that. But it would appear that the Corinthians were setting aside sexual relationship and maybe making an excuse about the fasting part of things. God makes it very clear there should be no depriving of the sexual relationship except by mutual agreement. And he says be careful because you're gonna be tempted when you are holding yourself apart from each other. The third thing that we understand here is God's plan for sexuality is mandatory. Now, now watch this carefully. I'm I try to, try to, trying to outline this and give you some succinct statement. It's a little bit challenging to ver- verbalize it all out, but check this first of all. Sexual purity is mandatory, but marriage is not. Okay, there is no third way abstinence in the Lord great marriage great third way no sexual purity is mandatory marriage is not look at verse 6 this I say as a concession not as a commandment what is he talking about is the apostle Paul saying well I've just given you my opinion here's something I think you ought to do no What he's saying is this whole section, verses one through five, he's talking about marriage, marriage, marriage. And now he stops and says, now listen, I'm not saying you have to get married. I'm not saying you have to get married, but I am saying there has to be sexual purity. There is no superior spiritual value to being single or married. The great value is in living according to God's gift or God's calling or his enabling. Look what he says in verse 7. I wish that all men were even as I myself. Clearly, he's saying he's not married. But each one has his own gift from God, one this matter, the other married. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they stay like I am. Paul was either unmarried or a widower. One of the two. Now, we can speculate. I'll give you the only clue that's in the scripture. Okay? Was Paul married or widowed, unmarried or widowed? In in Acts 26.10, he is telling his testimony, and he says, many of the saints I shut up in prison, prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now you say, what does that say about his married state? Well, what it says is the ruling body in Israel was the Sanhedrin, sometimes called the elders in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And they were the people who had the authority to enact civil penalties. And they were the ones who gave Paul the authority to begin with to go out and arrest Christians and put them under punishment or put them in prison. And he says here, many of the saints I put in prison having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. If he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin... He was married, okay? Now, if that verse doesn't mean he was a voting member, then it could be either way. Because he was such a, an authority in the scripture, because he was so, so well-known, because he appears to have been connected to the Sanhedrin, most people believe that he, well, most, I'm going to overgeneralize, many Bible scholars believe he was married, and apparently by this time, I'm going to assume he was widowed, okay? Okay? And he stayed single on purpose or by God's gift. And he encourages others to stay single. Now we're not going to get to the answer. Why does he think that's the better way till later in the chapter? And let me just give you a preview. He he basically says these are days of trouble for Christians. And it would be easier for you if you weren't married. I mean, can you imagine right now living in the troubled Middle East? where a group of 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 rebel militant types come in and is going to take over your town and if you were a mar- if you are a married christian in that setting and they come in and know you're a christian what do they do to christians many times those folks they kill them so if you're married with children is that is that going to be easy no, that's going to be really hard. So what, what the, Paul is going to argue for later in the chapter is saying, you know what, we're, we're in some tough times. And the apostle Paul didn't know how tough it was because AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem hadn't happened yet. And he's going to say, it's, going to, it's just plain going to be easier if you're not married. And, that's why he, and it's also easier to just serve the Lord 100% of the time with your time Okay? I'm not saying that single people don't have a life. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what he was saying. He's saying it's easier to make that choice. Okay? And that's why he, he argues here saying, hey, I wish they could all stay like me, but, but verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. Now, he's not saying people that get married are weak in terms of sexual self-control. What he's saying, and he's going to say it very clearly by the end of the chapter, some people are gifted by God to be single, some people are not. Okay? And so I, I do believe that Paul was married and that he at this point is not married. He is widowed, if you will. And, uh, and so he says, I think that's the way to go. When we get to this later in the passage, I will use this term, the gift of celibacy. Now, people who are single don't think that's a gift many times. But that's the term that's come to be used of this. In other words, God gives a gift. I had a friend in college who was a a good, godly young man, eventually became a pastor. He's been a pastor all these years since then. But he broke up with a girl at a particular time, and he came into the dorm saying, you know, I think I've got the gift of celibacy. I think I'm just going to serve the Lord as a single pastor, and so on, so on, so on. And six months later, he was engaged. He didn't have a gift <laughs> okay okay sexual purity is mandatory but marriage is not we have some wonderful single servants of God who have been single all their life right here in this church we heard from one a couple weeks ago Sharon Rahili who's been single all of her life um, one of our dear retired missionaries, Iola Boyers, down here went out as a single woman, was single for many years, eventually married the widower, missionary, husband of one of her co-workers, and was married for 10 years, and now is single again. Okay? God leads us down different paths. Sexual purity is mandatory, marriage is not. Affection in marriage is mandatory. Verse 6 I say this as a concession, in other words, if you get married, if you get married, the affection is mandatory. There is no third way, well, I'm married, but I'm just going to pretend I'm single and devote myself to the Lord's work. No, 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 no. Number three, abstinence is mandatory outside of marriage. Verse nine, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. This truth does not justify any old marriage. And we'll see that as we go all the way through the chapter. That's one of my problems in preaching this passage. Frankly, there's dangerous stuff at every section. If you don't take the whole, but grab one section, you're going to be in trouble. So, So take the whole, hang in there for that abstinence is mandatory outside marriage just because god said it's better to marry than to burn with passion that doesn't say every marriage is approved by god that every marriage that every marriage is god honoring marriage together in him is living together is not honoring adultery is not friends with benefits and if you don't know what that is you're too old it's essentially fornication with a new name common concept in the youth culture to say well we have sex together but we don't have a relationship we're not like a boyfriend or a girlfriend we just enjoy each other occasionally friends with benefits it's wrong one of the reasons that I don't like people to watch me work in my shop is that I make a lot of mistakes Generally, if you would look at my projects, they don't show any mistakes because I've learned to compensate, to redo, to modify, and sometimes to start over. With me, it is very seldom a straight path from beginning to end. Good product, but a circuitous path on the way there. God has given us a straight path for sexuality. And it goes from singleness, which is abstinent, to marriage, which is a joyful sexual union. That is God's straight path. I realize not everybody has had the opportunity even to know of that path, much less to walk on it. But I want you today to look forward no matter where you've been in your life, and to think about God's straight path because this is the promise. This is the promise that God gives us, and I love this little proverb. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no problems ever. That's not what I'm saying. But when we walk in righteousness, God brings blessing and we don't have to look back going, oh, I wish I hadn't. I, uh, you know, and all these problems. We can rejoice. We can enjoy. We can go forward in blessing, not in brokenness. We bring honor to God, and we bring blessing to ourselves. I want to challenge you today to reject what the world is saying and go after God's joy in the area of sexuality. Heavenly Father, this is an area that tempts everyone deeply because you have put this within us. And I just pray that you'll help us to walk on your straight path. For those that are married, I pray that you'll keep them true to their spouse. I pray that you will help them to love each other completely and physically. For those that are unmarried, Father, I pray that you will strengthen their resolve to stay abstinent and pure, and I pray that you will bless them as they do it, and I pray that if it's your will that you'll bless them with marriage uh, in a way that they can clearly see your hand and they can enjoy the blessings you've planned for that. Father, for everyone else who was is in between or back and forth, I pray that you will make your way known. Give them your peace. Give them your courage. Give them your strength. Give us your blessing as we walk on your path together. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.